Yesterday I woke up full of expectation. Indeed, great expectations. I chose my finest looking pot of marmalade. I lovingly wiped it clean from dust from the storage cupboard. I carefully mounted what I thought was a truly outstanding photograph of sunset. And I duly brought them to the church centre to be entered in the world famous Western Village show, flower show. Hours later, I returned with a beating heart to see what prizes I had won. Alas, my high hopes and great expectations were dashed. Nul point was the order of the day. Not even a consolatory highly commended. Crestfallen, I turned away, nursing my wounded pride, but resolving to live to fight another day and in another show. Rest assured, judges, I will be back. (laughs) Every day we carry expectations, mostly they're to do with relatively trivial things. The birthday meal at a restaurant, a film or a play that we want to watch, the holiday abroad. Sometimes those expectations are about bigger things, such as what our children are going to do and be when they grow up. What we might do in retirement the house we're about to move into. And I hope also that we have spiritual expectations of what God might do in our lives and what God might do through us in other people's lives. This week, as you well know, sees the start of a new chapter or maybe a new era in the life of all saints as well as our two sister parishes. On Thursday, Mark Sell will be installed or inducted or licensed, nobody seems to know quite what the right word is, as the rector of All Saints Western, St. Martin's, North Stoke, and St. Mary Magdalene language. He will be the 39th rector at All Saints since Jordanus in the year 1297. You can see that on the board at the back. And for mathematicians amongst you, on average, a rector is here for 19 and a half years. After 13 months without an incumbent, we are ready for a new rector, especially the wardens, I'm sure. And my guess is that you'd have to go back well into the early 19th century to find a time when there was no paid minister at this place. And I would guess there has never been a time in the history of the church when for a whole year and more there hasn't been a stipendary minister at the church. So after weeks of preparing and agreeing a parish profile that all parishes could endorse, two complete cycles of advertising, shortlisting and interviewing, months of negotiating with the diocese to retain the rectory, and then nearly nine months of work on the rectory, we nearly have a new rector. And I'm sure we all have great expectations of the years ahead, as indeed does Mark and his wife Megan also having great expectations And we read something of that in his newsletter, which is in the September newsletter. On Thursday, it will no doubt be a joyful and inspiring service. I hope it will be a full church to give a ringing endorsement to his arrival. In our parish profile, we put three key words, grow, build, open. We want to be growing churches, not gently declining churches. Building in more ways than one, 
and opening new things, as well as being open to the call of God on our lives. Those are great expectations. And with that context in mind, let us turn briefly to the two powerful passages that we read. And interestingly, I don't think I've ever heard a sermon on Haggai 1, which is really a very, very challenging but easy to understand chapter in the Bible. And just in case you're wondering and getting nervous, this is not going to be a sermon about giving more financially, much less about giving to the rock project. But if the cap fits. (laughs) I hope you may have picked out, knowing the sermon, the title of the sermon, uh, the two occasions in the readings when the word expect occurred. In Haggai we read, you expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. And by way of contrast in Corinthians, we heard and read, their rich generosity exceeded our expectations. So in the one case, expectations were not met, and in the other, they were more than met. And what was the reason for this? Well, let's turn briefly to Haggai. It's around the year 520 B.C., Sixteen years earlier, a group of about 50,000 Jews have returned from exile in Babylon with a mandate from the king of uh, Persia, Cyrus, to rebuild the temple of the Lord. Those Jews quickly rebuilt the altar. It took them a little longer, two years, to lay the foundations for the temple. But that is when the work stopped. Their Samaritan neighbors had offered to join in the work, but they were refused. So the Samaritans, in turn, first threatened them and then sent a delegation to Persia to lobby against the building of the temple, and that brought the work to a halt. So another 14 years has passed, and no work has been done to the house of the Lord, the place that symbolizes the presence and the centrality of God in the nation. And during that time, the people have got caught up in the routines of life. Farming, making money, building houses, raising families, providing for their retirement, enjoying their retirement, and that sort of thing. Do you recognize any of them? They had got used to life without a proper temple. But it seems that things have taken a downturn. Nowadays, we would call it a recession or even a crash. Then it was a breakdown in the seasons or something. God tells them through Haggai, you've planted much but harvested little. You eat but never have enough. You drink but never have your fill. You put on clothes but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in. Well, we've all known purses with holes in, haven't we? Their expectations of full stomachs, being warm, comfortably off, money for a rainy day are not being met. And why is this? Well, Haggai gives the answer. They have got their priorities all wrong. They have put their own needs and wants and expectations, many of them entirely legitimate, but before God. They are busy with home extensions and home decoration, especially cedar wood panelling, which must have been all the rage. 
They look at the ruins of the temple but say to themselves, Ah, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house. In my experience, there is never a good time to start a new work for God or more to the point, raise a lot of money to start a new work for God. There are always arguments why this is not a good time to start something. So God says to them, what you brought home, I blew away. Because each of you is busy with your own house, while my house remains a ruin. Now then, give thought to your ways. It's a powerful message. Each one of them, and bear in mind that many of them came back pretty wealthy from Babylon. They weren't all poor, impoverished. Each one of them has put their comfort and prosperity and standard of living before God. Which of us here today can look at our expenditure this year and over the years and say, I've always given first and best to the Lord? Someone has once said that there's a great deal of theology to be revealed in our checkbook and our bank statements. Of course, down through the ages, many Christians have done far more than give of a little material prosperity or cut down on their wine consumption. Many have risked their livelihood, their health and their lives to follow the call of God. Over the past few days, I've been reading the life of a remarkable Scotsman called Dr. John Gibson Payton. Until recently, I had never heard of him. I don't know if you've heard of him. He was an early missionary to a group of islands in the Pacific, which used to be called the New Hebrides and is now called Vanuatu. Uh, Those islanders were well-known cannibals. In fact, in 1839, two missionaries, John Williams and James Harris, were dropped off by, this is just coincidence, they were dropped off by a ship, a trading ship like that. They rowed to the shore, they stood on the shore, and within 30 minutes they were both dead and then eaten within the next few hours. Um, A few years later, one of them brothers went out and he too was martyred two years after going. But this... um, uh, uh, So I'm talking about Dr. Payton. So when Payton responded to the call of the Scottish Presbyterian Church for missionaries to go to the New Hebrides a few years after that incident, the powers that be were delighted. For some reason, they'd find it difficult to get some more volunteers. But there were also many voices trying to dissuade Payton from going. He was doing a remarkable work amongst the poor in Glasgow, though he was from Dumfrieshire. And in his autobiography, which I've read this week, he writes this. Amongst many who sought to deter me was one dear old Christian gentleman whose crowning argument always was, the cannibals, you'll be eaten by cannibals. At last I replied, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or by worms. Those missionaries, and many today, had expectations of hardship and disease 
and loneliness and hostility, not great prosperity. Actually, in John Payton's case, he lived to be in his 80s after extraordinary hardships and attempts on his life. But that was not true of the young wife he took to the New Hebrides. Within a year or so of them landing on the island of Tanna, Gibson had to single-handedly bury the body of his wife and their newly-born first child. He was not one like the Jewish, Christ, Jewish believers of Haggai's time who said, the time has not yet come, in his case, to go to the father's parts. Now let's look briefly at the Corinthian situation. Paul's writing to the Corinthians as he's written to other Greek churches to encourage them to give to his first century Christian aid or tier fund organization which he's setting up. He's collecting money to help relieve the poverty of the Christians in Jerusalem who are in dire straits as a result of famine. And to spur the Corinthians on, he praises the Macedonian churches, Philippi, Berea, and Thessalonica. And even though those churches were in the middle of a very severe trial and had themselves great poverty, they responded magnificently to his request. He writes, in the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity and they exceeded our expectations. And then he goes on to say, and this is the difference with the Jerusalem Jews in Haggai's time, each of whom was busy with their own houses and interests. The Macedonians gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God also to us. First to the Lord and then to us. Some of you might remember an old CSSM chorus that goes like this, J-O-Y, J-O-Y, surely it must be. Jesus first, yourself last, others in between. You recognize that one? Simple it may be, simplistic even, but there is some truth in it. First to the Lord, and then to the poor and the relief fund was the response of the Macedonians. At Mark's service on Thursday, the final song he's chosen is Be Thou My Vision. And one of the verses has these words, Thou and though thou only, first in my heart, sovereign of heaven, my treasure thou art. And so with Mark, yes, we have great expectations, but I want to caution us all about having too great expectations of him and what he can do. I'm sure he will be the first to say he is a work in progress and that he does not have all the gifts and skills we would all like to see in a perfect rector. He will be better at some things than others. He will focus on some things more than others. If he institutes change, it will almost certainly unsettle some of us. But all of the responsibility for growing and building and opening in this church does not rest on his shoulders. All our expectations are not to be centred on him. If they are, we'll be disappointed. No, our expectations should be on God and on ourselves under God. If we put the Lord, 
his house, his kingdom, his ways first and foremost in our lives, then we can indeed have great expectations for all saints. If we can put more and more of ourselves and what we might have at the disposal of God, then who knows what might happen in this church, in this community and the city. Who knows where the ripples and waves will stop. Let me end with one of the most famous Christian sayings outside of the Bible. Expect great things for God, from God. Attempt great things for God. It was first said by that shoemaker from Northamptonshire, William Carey, frequently referred to as the father of the modern missionary movement. And that phrase, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God, was first spoken by him in a sermon at a Nottingham church in 1792. In it he called for a great movement of the Protestant churches in Great Britain to fulfill the Matthew 28 commission to go out into all the world and preach the gospel. He spoke on Isaiah, enlarge the place of your tent, stretch your tent curtains wide, do not hold back. And that sermon and a booklet he published two months earlier was the catalyst or maybe the catapult for the modern missionary movement. Two or three months later, the Baptist Missionary Society was formed and six months later, he set sail with his wife for India. But that's a story for another day. So today we approach the start of a new chapter. We don't say with Alexander Pope, blessed is he who never expects anything for he shall never be disappointed. No, we stand with William Carey and with St. Paul and with Christians down through the ages, expecting great things from God as we ourselves commit ourselves to him and attempt great things. Let us hold on to the twin handles of both looking to God and attempting for God. Not all on Mark's soul, but all on God and our full partnership with him. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way it challenges and encourages us. And we pray that these words and the words from scripture may not be lost in us, but may be lived out in the days to come and throughout our church community. Amen.